All right, please open in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 22. The book of Acts chapter 22 is our study for this morning. We're going to briefly recap verses 1 to 5 and get into verses 6 through 22 of Acts chapter 22. We're really glad you're here. Thank you for being here and thank you for studying the Word of God together with us this morning from Acts chapter 22. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are just so in awe of what you do for us and what you have done for us in salvation. May we fulfill all that you set us apart to do. May we ask, as Paul asked, what do you want me to do, Lord? And may we be as faithful in fulfilling it as Paul was. At great cost to himself. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who lives within us the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for desiring to use us in your program in the world as is illustrated in how you used Paul. And what an example he is to us of the need to be willing to follow you whatever comes into our lives. Lord, thank you as always for the salvation that you've given us in Jesus Christ, your Son. The moment we put our trust in him, thank you. Thank you that you provided a way for us to take care of the sin problem. Thank you that you provided a way for us to move from death to life. Thank you that you provided a way for us to have eternal life. Thank you that you provided a way for us to be a part of your family. Now, Lord, I thank you for your family here at Del Rio Bible Church. I thank you for those you bring here who love you, who seek your best for their lives. And Father, thank you that we also pray that you will bring into our midst those who have yet to make a decision for Jesus Christ and that your spirit might work in their hearts as we study your word together, and they might choose to put their faith in him. There's even one in either of our services this morning who have yet to do that. I pray that they would not let this day get away before they do. Now, Father, thank you. Guide us in this study in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the main things that we're going to see in our passage this morning from the uh, from book of Acts chapter 22 is how, uh, what a special thing salvation is and how it is that God draws us to Himself and uses us in a special way, sets us apart to be used by Him. We see that in Paul's life. We see that this is not just a simple testimony that Paul is giving, but it's a skillful argument. It's a skillful argument 
that Paul is acting under God's orders, as one writer said. Paul is acting under God's orders. And we see that from the moment God encounters him on the road to Damascus until this moment when Paul is before a crowd of Jews who want to take his life, who want to tear him from limb to limb, and it's only through being saved by Roman soldiers that Paul wasn't killed at this time and wasn't torn limb from limb. Salvation is such a special thing. I hope that you are so thankful to God for your salvation, for His having called you, for His having placed you in His family. Salvation is always a supernatural work of God. Salvation is always a supernatural work of God. Where He works in our lives, He works in our hearts to draw us to Himself, to show us the beauty of Jesus Christ, to show us our where we fall short, and to show us that He can give us eternal life. We see that in Paul's testimony here. We also see it in the testimony of others that God used in a mighty way. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy, talks about how God moved in his life to bring him to the place where he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He says, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Now that's kind of different from our normal testimonies, right? God saved me and everything in my life became good and, and it was wonderful and, and you know I'm on beds of ease, moving toward heaven. Well, that's not the experience of a lot of us who come to faith in Christ. That's not the experience of a lot of us who come to faith in Christ. Uh, C.S. Lewis went on to say, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly ignore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. How different that is from testimonies. How different Paul's testimony is from the testimonies that we hear today. I, I fear, and um, it, as I think about this, that we have become so human-centered in the way we express salvation and the way we talk about salvation, it's as if 
uh, we, we do the right thing, we play the right closing song in the service, we, we have uh, uh, the right, the right uh, means, uh, and a person comes to Christ. When we have that view, we're totally ignoring the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. When we have that view, we're totally ignoring God's part in salvation and God's desire. And when we have that view, we're also ignoring that God saved us for a purpose. God saved us for a reason. And that's what we see here. We see that in C.S. Lewis's life. We see that here in Acts chapter 22 in Paul's life. God saved him for a purpose. God pursued him on the road to Damascus. God pursued him. Paul wasn't pursuing God. Uh, uh, there are so many psychologizing ideas about what caused Paul to convert, what caused Paul to come to faith in Christ. There's so many ideas out there, but Paul wasn't pursuing God. He was pursuing the church. He was pursuing believers. Why was he pursuing them? To kill them. To arrest them. Take them to Jerusalem. Put them on trial. And put them to death. He wasn't pursuing God, but God was pursuing him. And that's why when God pursued him, when Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to, to, to Damascus, Paul's response is, what do you want me to do, Lord? Because Paul understood. He wasn't pursuing God. He hated believers. And so the first thing he could do when he put his faith when he encountered Jesus Christ and put his faith in him, the first question he would ask is, what, what do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? You see, when we have such, an, and I, I don't want to press this too far, but when we have such a human-centered view of salvation, if we accepted Christ, then later on, if we kind of don't have that feeling anymore, we can reject him or reject his will for our lives. Paul was not pursuing God. God pursued him. Paul answered God's call to him. And Paul then said, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the right question. We're going to see that when we get to that in just a few moments. The right question for your life and my life is, Lord, what do you want me to do? All right, let's, let's uh, kind of uh, look back a little bit. Last week we, we looked about the fact that there are three parts to Paul's testimony, three parts to Paul's uh, defense. The first part we looked at last week, verses 1 to 5, that was the before he was saved story. And now today we're looking at verses 6 to 16, uh, how Paul was converted. And then in verses 12, 17 to 21, we'll look at the answer, I mean, excuse me, the after his conversion. So we have the before that we looked at last week, we have the how that we're looking at today, as well as the after that we'll also look at today. We'll look at chapter 22 and verse 1 as we just kind of recap a little bit. Brothers and fathers, that's how Paul begins his message. 
Listen now to my defense. Brothers and fathers, that was not the common way that somebody would begin an address in that day. A common address in that day would be men, brothers. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say men and brothers. Rather, Paul as fathers, as he says, brothers and fathers. Now, what's significant about that? And you say, well, what does it matter that he didn't use the common address of that day? What matters is this, when he addresses them in the manner that he does, brothers and fathers, there's someone else that addressed a mob in his time some years earlier in the book of Acts the, the very same way. Who might that be? Anybody know? Stephen. Stephen, the first martyr, it is at Stephen's martyrdom that there was a rabbi, a young rabbi there, who was giving approval to Stephen being put to death. There was a young rabbi there who was giving approval and holding the, the cloaks, the clothing of the people who put Stephen to death, the people who threw the rocks and the stones that put Stephen to death. And when he began his defense, he said, brothers and fathers. It's interesting how that stuck with Paul. That stuck with Paul to the point that he uses the same address when he now is on the other side of the story. He now is not the pursuer, but the pursued. He now is not the persecutor, but the persecuted. And so he uses that address. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard, them, heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. They, they really began to listen there. They had already been quiet, but then after he used Aramaic in their midst, they, not, a, not a sound could be heard. Why was that? Well, they didn't understand that he could speak Aramaic. Aramaic, as we said last week, was the language of Palestine. And so therefore, uh, Paul was a Jew of the dispersion. He would commonly speak Greek, but that he spoke Aramaic said volumes to them. And they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. And we looked at this last week, brought up in this city, Jerusalem, under Gamaliel, a famous uh, uh, rabbi. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. And then to prove his zealousness, to prove that he was just as zealous for God as they were, he gives them an illustration. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul shares his background as a Pharisee. He shares his connection to Gamaliel, who was a beloved rabbi, and his argument and see what he's trying to show the 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 people who are trying to put him to death, 
What he's trying to show them is that he was as Jewish as they are and he was as zealous for Judaism as anybody in the crowd. They were falsely accusing him that he was attacking Judaism. They were falsely accusing him that he was bringing a Gentile into the temple proper where a Gentile should not be and would defile the temple. They were falsely accusing him of these things. And so rather, Paul is showing that he is as zealous as them. He was as Jewish as them. He was as zealous for Judaism as anybody in the crowd. In other places, Paul tells us a similar thing. In the book of Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14, we read this. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see how those who were apostles before I, to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Paul's point is that he was as zealous as them for Judaism. His credentials are, fall, do not fall short of any of those who are there trying to persecute him to death. And that's part of his testimony, part of his defense. Verses 4 to 5 is the evidence of his seal, his commitment to the law that he pursued and killed believers. That's how he's developing his argument. But things are going to make a turn in just a moment. But before they do, I want you to see what a mighty turn this is going to be for Paul. The common understanding, the official Jewish position in Paul's day was this, that Jesus Christ was an imposter who had been crucified. That was the official Jewish position on Jesus, that he was an imposter, pretended to be the Messiah who was crucified. Their position was that his body had been stolen by his disciples. Well, the Gospels take care of that. The Gospels share with us that that was a common uh, falsehood told in that day and gives us the reasons why the disciples could not have stolen his body. But that was the official Jewish line in that day. His body had been stolen by his disciples who later falsely claimed that he had been raised from the dead. That's what the official Jewish line was. That's what Jews of that day believed. That's what Paul bought into until the fateful moment on the road to Damascus when God stopped him in his tracks. That's what Paul believed. Because of that, Warren Wiersbe says this, Imagine Paul's amazement to discover that Jesus was alive. Instantly, he had to change his whole way of thinking. By the way, we call that repentance. Repentance is not to feel sorry for sin. Repentance is to change your way of thinking and living, to change your way of thinking and living. Imagine Paul's amazement to discover that Jesus was alive. 
Instantly, he had to change his whole way of thinking and let the risen Lord have control. God stopped him. God stopped him on his murderous intent. He was a Jew among Jews. He was zealous for the law, zealous for Judaism, and God stopped him. Think about how far he turned. He turned 180 degrees where he was pursuing believers he became a part of the believing group. Where he hated the church, he now was somebody who promoted the church and spread the gospel to much of the known world of that day. What a change had come over him. And see, that is the whole point of this. That is the whole point of this. He was so determined. He was so determined in his Jewishness. He was so determined in his hatred of the church. He was so determined in his hatred of Jesus Christ. He was so determined that what Luke is trying to show us, what Paul is trying to show in his defense here, is that only a radical supernatural change could have changed him. Only a radical supernatural change could have changed him from the persecutor to the persecuted. He was determined in his path. And only a supernatural change could change that. Well, verses 6 to 9, uh, actually 6 to 16, but the beginning is 6 to 9, we have how Paul was converted. We read in verse 6, About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I ask? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? Only a radical supernatural change could have changed Paul's viewpoint. And we have his conversion, his encounter with Jesus Christ. He speaks of a heavenly confrontation. What's his response to being confronted by Jesus Christ? His response is the question, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? One writer said, this is really the story of Paul's calling. This is really the story of Paul's calling. You see, that's the first and most important question for every believer. That's the first and most important question for every believer. We, we somehow have gotten the idea in our age that uh, we, we put our trust in Christ, we walk a Nile, whatever it is we do, and then we go on with our lives, and then we continue just to pursue the same thing that the unbelievers around us are pursuing. We pursue the same kinds of things that they're pursuing. We never see our lives change. The question doesn't enter our lives. What do you want me to do, Lord? 
That's the question that matters. It's the one question we don't ask. We get saved and then we merrily go on with our lives in the same direction we were going. Except now we believe in Jesus. That wasn't true of Paul. He believed in Jesus, that's for sure. But when he said, what shall I do, Lord? He meant it. He meant it. You see, God calls us to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Isn't that an amazing thing? Can, can you think about how amazing that is? That, can, can, you, can you think like C.S. Lewis did and thought about how on earth did I ever come to faith in Christ? How is it that I'm a believer today? When I was kicking and screaming and going the other direction and didn't want anything to do with it, that's what he was thinking. That's what Paul thought until he met Jesus and he changed, his life changed forever. He seriously asked God, what is it that you want me to do? God calls us to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Our calling is not, and this is the problem, our calling is not without pain or disappointment or trouble. You know, sometimes we get the idea and sometimes some believers give us the idea wrongly that we put our faith in Jesus Christ and then we just float on beds of ease right up into glory. No challenges, no problems, no difficulties, no pain. But that's not true, is it? For some people, they have greater problems after coming to faith in Jesus Christ than before, greater challenges after coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we ask the question, what do you want me to do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? We have to remember that sometimes our calling will not be without pain or disappointment or trouble. The difference is we will have the God of all the universe, the God of all power, the God of love, the God of grace, beside us and inside us to take us through whatever challenge he allows in our lives. God calls us to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Our calling is not without, sometimes without pain or disappointment or trouble. But the other thing is that many times we are misunderstood by other Christians. When you start to get serious about God and his desire for your life, when you start to get serious about what God wants you to do, when you start to get serious about that, other Christians get threatened by that. And they try to drag you back to where they are. You don't, no, no, you don't want to go that direction. You know, you, you, you can take this thing, this Jesus thing too far. Can you? Oh, Jesus, don't worry about the cross. You know, you did a lot of good things. You, you, you made your point. You don't need to go to the cross. No, he needed to go to the cross. He needed to die in your place and my place. It's 
So if another believer says, oh, you know, you're just taking this too seriously, I don't see how you could ever take it seriously enough. Paul's question is, what do you want me to do, Lord? And then Paul tells him. <laughs> I mean, God tells Paul. God tells him what he wants him to do. What shall I do, Lord? That's the right question. That's the right question you should ask. That's the right question I should ask. Believers should no longer see life in the same way. No longer in terms of manipulating circumstances and people to get our way. The question is, what do you want me to do, Lord? What is your purpose for me? If we ask, He'll tell us. If we ask, He'll tell us. When I was in seminary, one of our favorite profs was Dr. Howard Hendricks, who is in heaven today. Uh, he was favored for many, many, many reasons. Um, unfortunately, since his, since his death some years ago, uh, not a lot of people remember him, and not a lot of people uh, listen to his teaching or, or read his, uh, he didn't have a lot of books, but read his books, and uh, he was just so practical about faith, and he had such a great way of expressing it, and he was really good at alliteration. You know, uh, that's an art. There's an art to being good at alliteration. I always have at least that one or two things that won't fit. It can't, you know, I need another C, but I can't find a word that fits. Uh, he was great at it. And, you know, he's talking to seminary students who some in those days, some were married, and that's still true today. There are some married seminary students. Uh, but the great bulk of seminary students in that day was look, were there looking for a mate. That was ahead of their studies. Must find me mate. You know, that was, that was kind of what they were there for. And what better place to find a Christian mate than a seminary, right? That's the way to do it. I, Kathy and I found each other at seminary. <laughs> okay, enough said. <laughs> but he said and particularly he was talking to the unmarried students, he said there are three things, and he said, communicate the, this to the youth that you know, to the young people, especially those who are unmarried. There are three things you must determine in your life. There are three things you must determine in your life, and they are in three M words, your master, your mission, and your mate. And his point was this, we always get it out of balance because we put mate up there, right? That's first, that's most important. If I find my mate, then we can worry about what we're going to do and whether Jesus is going to be the master of our lives. He said the right three questions in this particular order are these. Who will be the master of my life? Who will be the master of my life? Am I going to be the master of my life? Or is it going to be 
Somebody else? Is it going to be my mate? Who will be the master of my life? Is it going to be mom and dad? Who will be the master of my life? By the way, you should listen to your mom and dad up to the point that you are an adult. You should still listen to their advice. They have great advice. But who will be the master of your life? That's the first question. Who will be the master of your life? If you get that one right, then you can go on to the second one, which is what will be my life's purpose? What will be my mission in life? That's the right order. Who will be the master of my life? What will be the mission of my life? Then you're ready to find the mate to share it with. Other than that, you may go off in the wrong direction. To please somebody other than Jesus Christ. The third question in that order, the first is, who will be the master of my life? The second is, what will be my life's purpose? What will I give my life to? And the third is, who will share my life? Who will share my life in that order? In that order. Paul asked the right question. What shall I do, Lord? Get up, the Lord said. This is verse 10. And go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Now I want you to notice that Paul introduces this man named Ananias. Who was he? He was a devout observer of the Lord and high of the, excuse me, devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. See, again, what Paul is trying to communicate here is that his commission was received. Excuse me, what Paul was trying to say here, we'll get to his commission in a second, is Paul was trying to stress the Jewish surroundings of his salvation. The Jewish surroundings of his salvation. Ananias is described as devout, an observer of the law, highly respected by the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God, excuse me, the God of our fathers, a little bit of water. The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Now this is important to understand and to underline the words the righteous one. The righteous one is a reference to the Messiah. It's a messianic title. Paul saw the righteous one which means that Paul saw the Messiah. Well, who did Paul see? Who was 
Paul encountering on the road to Damascus? Well, obviously, Jesus Christ. By the way, that's what qualified Paul to be an apostle. That's what qualified Paul to be an apostle. Remember, way back in the early chapters of Acts, when they laid out the qualifications for replacement for Judas, they said the number one thing is that the person who replaces Judas must have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Here and in other places, 1 Corinthians 9.1, 1 Corinthians 15.8, here we see why Paul was qualified to call himself an apostle. Verse 14, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men. Now there is something interesting here. Paul sort of changed it. If you go back to chapter 9 and verse 15, Jesus' words in 9.15 to Paul were, you will be my witness to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the Jews. You see how clever Paul was in stating his case. Instead of mentioning Gentiles, the mention of which later in this passage will cause the crowd to go into a frenzy. Paul, instead of saying Gentiles, kings, Jews, said all men. Verse 16, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away calling on his name. Now, that passage has engendered all kinds of discussion, all kinds of wrong doctrines, especially the, the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Uh, if you're not familiar with that term, what that means is that there are those, uh, one, one group in particular is the Church of Christ, there are those whose doctrine is that unless you believe, and are baptized, you can't go to heaven. So you can believe and still not go to heaven. You've got to believe and be baptized. And this is one of the verses that they misuse to try to prove this. Now to understand it, it's to understand what is really being said here, what is really being told to Paul to do, we have to get a little technical with the, with the grammar, but it, under, it helps us to understand. Literally, you would translate this if you were doing the translation, having gotten up, be baptized. Having called on the name of the Lord, be cleansed from your sins. You see, there are two parts to that phrase. There are four important words. There are two verbs. There are two verbs in the passage. Be baptized, wash away are the two verbs, and they have participles, which are helping participles to expand on what they're saying. Having risen is a participle which expands on and is connected to be baptized. Having arisen, be baptized. Then the next couplet is wash away your sins, that's the verb, having the participle then attached to that is having called on his name. So, having arisen, be baptized, that's one phrase, that goes together. 
And then the second phrase is, wash away your sins having called on His name. What is the connection with having your sins washed away? Calling on His name. The be baptized and calling on, uh, calling on His name are not linked. It's literally having arisen, be baptized, wash away your sins, having called on His name. The point is that baptism pictures the washing away of sins. It doesn't wash away sin. It pictures it. It pictures it. Having arisen or gotten up, be baptized. Having called on the name of the Lord, be cleansed from your sins. That's how the passage goes together. That's the correct understanding. Now, there are other verses, but I'm, I'm not going to take time. I'm out of time to, to get into those this morning. But this is one of the main ones that's misused to teach baptismal regeneration. Well, as we go on, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Paul could not understand that. And he said in verse 8, 19, Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. When the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In other words, what Paul was saying is that, Lord, you don't understand. They, all, they, they have got to understand. They have got to look at my life and say, this guy was killing believers. This guy was going around uh, to other cities to arrest believers in Jesus Christ so that they could be tried and put to death. They've got to believe me. Look at the change that came into my life. And the only thing that could cause that change to come into my life is a supernatural event. God intervened. But God knew that would not be the case. And that's what it is like for many of us. We think people, people have got to, they'll see the change in us. They'll see how different we are. They'll see what has been wrought in our lives because we have trusted in Christ. And what God is saying to Paul, and I think to us, is that's not always the case. They will find other reasons. I shared with you last week, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, there are those among my friends, family, and acquaintance who said that I had been brainwashed. They didn't accept the changes that had come into my life. They did not accept my testimony that I had believed in Jesus Christ. Because that is the way of the world. And Paul thought it would impress them that he had once been among them, once been one of them. And now was not in the Lord said, go away. I'll send you to the Gentiles. It's interesting, I don't have time, I'm just going to give you a couple of verses here to look up. It's interesting how we see in verses 17 and 18 the divine side of Paul's instruction 
to leave Jerusalem in verses 17 and 18. You've got to look at the parallel passage in chapter 9, verses 29 and 30, where it was the church who said to him, Paul, you've got to leave and go to Tarsus. You see, we always see it as one way or the other. It's either God does it or people do it. They work together. God told Paul to go. The church observed that he shouldn't be there in Jerusalem. He was causing trouble. It works together. God works, in other words, God works through the circumstances of your life and my life. God works through those circumstances. Well, so much here, but verse 21 Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Uh Uh-oh, there's the word. You said it. Ding, 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 ding. What do I win, Paul? You don't win anything. You win a trip to the whipping post, which is what happens next. But we'll get to that next week. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. William Barclay said, There is a certain wistfulness here as with, as with his master Paul's own would not receive him. He is literally saying, I had a priceless gift for you, but you would not take it. So it was offered to the Gentiles. Another writer said the Jewish leaders and people want Paul out of the way. They want him silenced. They would prefer him dead rather than hear him continue to challenge their view of God's will. And I guess the last word is this by another writer. It's a fateful hour. In rejecting Paul, the people are once again rejecting Christ. And one who rejects Christ is always self-condemned. He is truly fighting against God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for Paul's defense, for his testimony. Thank you for showing us the right question to ask after we encounter you on our road to Damascus after we put our trust in you, the right question to ask is, what do you want me to do? And be serious about your answer. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.